Hey everybody, welcome to the Hunt for Real podcast. I am your host, Tony Peterson. Today I have back on the podcast, Aaron Warbritton from The Hunting Public. Aaron is one of my favorite guests. He's kind of a... really, really kickstarted this this new wave public land hunting movement that we're seeing, him and his crew. And he's always he's always fun to talk to. And this episode we go through all kinds of stuff. We talk about what life is like trying to build content around public land bow hunting and and the demands that go with that. Talk about trophy mentality. We talk about uh, what it's like to travel to a whole bunch of different states and how much we both love turkey hunting. And we we cover a lot of different topics on this. It's so much fun to talk to Aaron. Uh, if you haven't if you haven't subscribed yet, please do that. Uh, you'll get every episode we drop every week. If you haven't given us a rating and a review, please do that. That helps us out so much as well. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. In one minute, everything can change and it can become the best hunt of your life. It's a reality. Really understanding the landscape, that's what kills big deer. Aaron Warbritton, welcome back to the Hunt for Real podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. I, I'm stoked to talk to you for a bunch of reasons. I know we got, uh, we're, we're, we're falling right into turkey season here, but I want to talk to you a little bit about your job. Um, actually, I want to talk to you about being Kardashian level famous in the hunting industry <laughs> first. What's that like? <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I still sit in a dungeon every day and edit videos on a laptop, just like I have done for the last decade or so. So if it's if there's any fame associated with this, I'm not sure where where it is. It, maybe it's coming yet. Uh, so it's not all <laughs> private jets and champagne and and the good life. No, nah, we're we're making content that people like to watch, but uh, we haven't figured out how to make any money off of it or anything <laughs> like that. So <laughs> it's uh, you know, I just had Randy Newberg back on. You know, we both know Randy and this the YouTube strategy for content creation i think people underestimate what goes into that 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 machine and that business model is you can never satiate like the desire for the content it's just a constant need to produce content i've I've been thinking about this like how long do you stare at a computer every day of your life uh on average probably between eight and 12 hours a day but you know, usually in the off season, it's not too bad. Like in the summertime, we'll get more time to spend with our families and that sort of thing. But this winter has, we, we cranked so much content last fall that we were just backed up with editing. So all of us just nonstop have been doing nothing but sitting in front of a computer for, well, since we got back from Arizona coos deer hunting in mid January. Mm-hmm. How, how many people do you have editing for you? Uh, I mean... I edit Greg, Zach, Jake, Ted. Um, we pretty much all do it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's something that we're constantly working on all the time. That's the, that's the main reason why we can create so much content mm-hmm. is because all of us are working on a project every single day of some kind. Greg probably does the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, I've been around a fair amount of, uh, outdoor television production in my life. And, you know, I mean, it, you, you take most of the shows out there just, just to, you know, 
13 shows a year or 26 shows a year, whether whatever kind of schedule they're on for the network television, they have at least one dedicated editor. That's just their full-time job. And some of them have two. Yeah. We don't have that. <laughs> we just, and, and we kind of do that by design too. You know, um, we all come from video production backgrounds and uh, understand how to edit and produce videos for YouTube and the web and whatnot. So we, we like to have be a full participant in that entire process. I feel like if you get removed from the editing side somewhat and you're spending a lot of time on camera hosting whatever, then you start to lose your understanding and your grasp of how all of that stuff goes together. So it, it actually helps us all because all of us are on camera all the time doing stuff and we're filming people all the time hunting and then we're all editing all the time so it helps us mm -hmm. be more efficient at the entire process yeah that's that's kind of uh everybody who's involved in your team kind of understands all the moving parts and so it probably yeah. makes the whole thing more efficient overall because you don't have somebody who shows up in front of the camera does their thing hunts for a couple of days and then just walks away they, it doesn't work that way for you guys no uh-uh everybody everybody pulls their weight and everybody wears a bunch of different hats yeah, that's, uh, you know, being a f primarily a freelance writer, you know, for most of my career, that's one of the things that's, it's always driven me nuts about uh, some of my editors or some of the sales guys at the magazines or wherever you work, they don't know the content creation side. And, you know, likewise, I don't know the sales side as well as they do. Or I, I used to edit, so I know that side pretty well, but you can't, it's just, these things work better, especially when you're on insane deadlines like you guys are and these content obligations it works better when everybody understands all of the shit everybody has to wade through oh yeah it's non-stop work i mean it's uh that's that's the thing that most people don't see you know and especially in the fall and the spring during our peak hunting seasons you know deer season or turkey season we we go into an area with one tag most of the time and there'll be three or four of us there like that one person will be hunting. The other people will either be rotating in and out, filming with them, or most of the time they spend in front of the computer. And when we're on the road, that means that they're in a camper or they're in a tent or they're front seat of the truck or a Starbucks or a McDonald's or a library or I could go on. But mm -hmm. that means they're in front of the computer nonstop. And it probably takes between 20 and 30 hours total work in front of a computer to put up one video. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I mean, I don't, I, I guess I don't know how to frame this. I don't want to step on any toes, but this, you guys do an awful lot of bow hunting. And, you know, I mean, I see you mix in some of the gun hunting stuff and obviously the turkeys, you'll jelly had a bunch of them, but you know, your, your deer content is largely bow hunting and you see people who've done kind of similar things to you guys, probably not to the level of content production that you have. And they, they lean pretty heavy into the gun side of things. And it's, it almost looks like, it's just like, this is hard enough as it is. <laughs> like I want, I, I want to use something a little easier and try to make this easier. And you guys kind of have said, we're going to show everything, but there's clearly a bend towards some bow hunting stuff there. And there's just no way around what it takes to film that stuff on public land and then produce the back end, the post-production stuff. It's just a monster process always. Yeah. Always. I mean, it takes, 
it takes an enormous amount of time to harvest a whitetail of any sort with a bow. I mean, no matter where, where you're hunting and then you go in the public land and make things a little bit more difficult on yourself and then pack a camera along and make things even more difficult. So yeah, it's, I'm not complaining by any means. We love it. Uh, we, we just are, we, for the most part, all have really good attitudes, positive attitudes. I would say when it comes to hunting and filming this stuff, like that's what we're, that's been our core mission from the get go is to create content that people can relate to. Mm -hmm. So that's always what we're doing. We're, we're thinking about how to film it in a way and discuss it in a way that is relatable to people and then ultimately produce it that way. How much does it feel you guys to see just the positive response out of there? Cause you, I got to tell you, man, you look tired. Yeah, I get that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) The guys are saying that my face is starting to sink in the last couple years. It's, but it's a lot of work man but how how much you know cuz you guys I mean you're just killing it out there and the response has been amazing so how much you know when you wake up in the morning you're like you know I got to stare at this computer for another 10 hours today but you're seeing you know through your social media and your YouTube comments and everything people are just they're eating it up how much does that fuel you Oh it helps tremendously I mean whenever we get messages from folks I mean we just we just posted a rabbit hunt catch clean and cook video uh, I don't know, when was that last night, I think. And I was already reading through some comments last night. And then this morning before I got out of bed and, uh, there were several people that were like, Hey, I'm going to go buy some, you know, number sixes and go rabbit hunting, you know, just from watching that video. And that's what really gets us fired up. You know, that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get more people, you know, involved in hunting. And even the ones that do hunt, we're trying to kind of light a fire under them to get out in the woods so reading those, that's really what keeps us going. Yeah. Well, that that idea, you know, you and I chatted about that before for ATA about how we've, you know, we in the industry have kind of made this focus on whitetails and it's been public land whitetails or maybe that elk trip or to a lesser extent, the turkey thing. But we've missed the small game boat to some extent. We've missed the upland and the waterfall and these other opportunities and there, there, that needs to be shown, I think. And I, and I know you agree with me on there that just, we, we've kind of skipped a bunch of steps for a lot of people and it's cool to get them into the deer thing or, you know, the big game thing, but to miss that small game, those small game opportunities that are out there on public land that are available to everybody, it's, it's kind of a disservice we've done and it's, it needs to be remedied. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, the excuse that I hear from let's say other content producers either in tv or on the web is that you're not going to get as many eyeballs on small game as you will the big game stuff and that might be true to an extent but we have a rabbit hunting video from last year that we posted in like late february and it's got like a hundred and some thousand views on youtube right now mm-hmm. you know it's got more views than any other content through that month period back then you know, so something in that video is triggering people's response and they seem to enjoy it, you know, and uh, to your point about getting more people involved in small game hunting. I mean, every, a lot of people have this same story, but that's how I started hunting. I mean, I started hunting rabbits when I was a kid with my uncle's beagle. And that's that happened way before deer and turkey stuff came in to the fray. Yep. Oh, and it's just, it's amazing how much fun it is and how active it is for people, especially if you're not, if you're new to hunting. 
Like you don't have to go sit in a deer blind and get bored to death for your first experience out in, in hunting. You know, you can go and hunt upland birds or hunt any type of small game rabbits and squirrels are a blast. Well, it, it, for sure. And it doesn't come with the trophy mentality. And that's, that's the thing that, you know, a lot of people get into whitetail hunting and they, you know, they'll see you guys and they'll think, oh, well, I could go out on public land and kill a 140 incher. Every, you know, there's lots of people out there doing it. It's like, man, there's, there's so much more going into that kill than you're seeing and so much more experience. And I really think people benefit an awful lot from starting hunting something where there's no trophy situation attached to it. You know, and it, there's no trophy squirrels. There's no trophy rabbits. They're all the same. And like you said, the, the, the opportunity it's just a different thing for people to come into, to appreciate the experience, have some action, get some food out of the deal, learn the process. And it's just not the same thing as a big game hunt. It's so beneficial to the development of people, I think. Yeah. And that's something we all have to do better as an industry is we have to show them what to do with the animals once they kill them. You know, we have to show them how to clean them or, you know, how to process them. And we got to show them where to take them. If in case you don't want to do your own processing, you want to take it somewhere. We have to give them all of that information because that's where we're, we're lacking tremendously right now. Yeah. There, there's an intimidation factor with that, that you, you hear from a lot of people who, you know, would become like adult onset hunters or who would come into this. They don't know, you know, they don't know what to do with that deer when they get it. Like that's a big intimidation thing. Or, you know, even on a smaller scale, you go and shoot a grouse, like we take it for granted. You know I mean? I can, I can clean a grouse in a minute, you know, and, but if you don't know what you're doing, it's, it, it's just something that might keep people from going out and doing this stuff. And it's, it's, it seems like an easy remedy, but the content has to be there. And like you said, you know, when you said, well, people told you don't make a rabbit video because nobody's going to watch it. How many times in your life doing what you've done and building this little empire that you guys have, have people said, you can't do that. You can't go out and build a media company, a hunting media company around public land. You can't have a no kill show. You can't have seven different guys show up on the same show. People tell you that stuff all the time and it's bull. Yeah, we've heard it all at this point. Well, I mean, I'm sure that's not true either. We'll probably continue (laughs) here. But yeah, I mean, somebody told me once, like, the public land thing will be super popular, but you, but you won't make any money at it because you don't, you're not using enough products. And that person might have been partially right. <laughs> but um, we never really cared that much about money. All we care about, you know, is bringing content to people that they can relate to and learn from. And uh, we do make enough to make a living at it. So that's good enough mm-hmm. at this point. But, oh, yeah, we hear we've heard everything. From our, from our tactics that we use, and I mean, you hear stuff about YouTube all the time as well, and there's some valid concerns there, you know, as far as the demonetization of hunting content and, and that sort of stuff, but I think, and I could be totally wrong on this, but I think with YouTube specifically, people are overreacting in the hunting world about uh, censorship, especially with their new policies and rules and stuff that they've just came out with. Yes, at times YouTube will censor hunting content because they deem it as too violent and it's dumb. But overall, like in their new policy, they allow hunting content on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it's not something that's just slipping through the cracks and that they're just going to shut down any day now. I mean, in their new policy, the one they just came out with, it specifically talks about hunting content. So yep. they know it's there. 
and they have no problem with it. Otherwise, they would have asked us a long time ago. Yep. Not to go off on a tangent, but no. But it's it's a good point because you know it's easy to it's easy to think about that as a, you know that platform could just snap their fingers in and say you're going to go away, but. Anybody who's been creating hunting content that's ended up anywhere, it it has had to go through something else. So, you know, like the the Outdoor Channel, Sportsman's Channel, there were certain things you couldn't show for a long time on those channels. And there was always guidelines you had to follow. And so it's more a matter of, you know, like you're going to have to stay in the lane somewhat as far as how gratuitous it gets and what you show. But you always had to do that. This is just a different platform now. And really, you know, it's reassuring to hear you say that about their new guidelines. And I, I think sort of the bridge to keep that open or, you know, like the the thing that we can do to make sure that stays that way is this push toward the meat and the consumption and the responsible usage of it. Because that, that organic food movement and uh, the being responsible with what you kill out there a lot of non-hunters are awful receptive to that. And if we have those people on our side, it's not going away. Hunters of tomorrow are going to look way different than the hunters of 2005. Mm-hmm. They just are. I mean, the hunters of 2005, 2010 look way different than the hunters of 1990. You know, maybe a lot of the same woodsmanship tips and tactics and those sort of things uh, rang true. But back in 1990, nobody cared about shooting a six and a half year old buck that scored 172 and you know 1930 seconds or whatever yeah um, <laughs> um nobody cared about that there were still guys that were hunting for big bucks but it it changed into growing big bucks almost into that and we're probably going to grow out of that at some point in, in some way shape or form at least part of the hunting population will i mean we may have to in order to sustain hunter numbers moving forward. And the, the organic movement is the biggest push right now at this time in like the next five to 10 years, you got to look in popular culture. Like how is hunting being talked about? Like Joe Rogan is not talking about hunting on his podcast as a way to go out and grow and harvest a mature buck. He's just talking about mostly hunting for food and yep. how he eats elk all the time, yep. you know, now that's what those big platforms like that that sort of cross that bridge into all those other demographics, that's what they're talking about. Yep. And that's where a lot of these people are coming from. You know, the QDMA guys and their field to fork stuff that they have going on. That's a lot of the people that are showing up are like hardcore liberals from the city that want to learn how to shoot a crossbow and go out and kill their own deer so they can learn to, you know, eat their own organic meat, if you will. Yep. So, Which I think is kind of... When you're talking whitetails and turkeys and stuff isn't entirely true because they're out eating the same corn. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I think I think they're eating some GMO stuff, but I don't want to I don't want to get down that road too far. I still think it's a hell of a lot better than and a lot of things we could be consuming. And I I think I, I'm sure you guys see this and I see this, too, uh, both with this podcast and my my sporting dog talk where people that that one's an interesting one because I'm talking to bird dog owners who maybe don't hunt. And, you know, like the Labrador Retriever is the most popular dog in the country. And a lot of people own them and they're open to the idea of hunting with that dog because it's an experience with their dog. And it kind of opens my eyes to, you know, how we've kind of lived in this echo chamber for a long time where we're preaching to people who are already hunting. And, you know, it's kind of like the the complaint about the youth seasons where, 
you know, if you have a youth season, it's probably the kids who are going to hunt anyway. They're just hunting earlier or something. And I'm not, I, I still like them. I'm still all for it. But that that's like one of the common complaints. And it's how do we reach these people who, you know, they didn't grow up in it. They don't, they don't have that background that we have of getting raised with the beagle and shooting the bunnies and all that stuff. How do they get into it? And how do we speak to them? And, you know, one of the easiest ways to do that is just through the meat. Like everybody understands eating good food, whether they choose to or not. And it's just one of those simple point A to point B, you know, topics that we can kind of relate to a lot of people on. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of folks in the hunting media don't realize how big of an opportunity it is for us. Like to be able to bridge that gap across this completely new and different demographic in which there's a lot of people there that have have never hunted, might have even been opposed to hunting at one point in time. Now you bring them into the fold, into what we do. And before you know it, you know, if you grow all these different segments, you have such diversity across the board when it comes to hunters that you know, that's going to make things easier to pass and Congress, that's going to form more support for public lands and protecting wildlife. I mean, that's the thing a lot of people don't understand. Like this is just uh, the, the only thing that I'm focused on most of the time is the issue of hunting, you know, and how we grow that and expand it in the next 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't see a downside to it. Maybe some of those people don't look, don't hunt the same way that you do or have the same goals that you do, but they're still hunting. And in a way they're still promoting that lifestyle. Yeah. Can't lose when that happens. So on that topic, how pissed off do you get when people, when other hunters are like, stop telling people about public land. There's too many people on public land already. And I don't want the competition. Yeah. We hear that stuff every once in a while. It's like, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I grew up trying to protect little pieces of public land by my house when I was a kid. Like, I kind of went through all that stage when I was a a teenager of going to high school and not telling anybody where you killed the turkey that's in the back of your truck or whatever, you know, because you don't want people to know about your your spot. But as we travel more and meet more people and talk to more people, none of that stuff matters all that much. Once you developed enough skills where you can go out and harvest game if you want to bad enough you can go and find a place to hunt there's there's public land within 30 45 minutes of most of us in you know across the country yep where you can where you can go out and have a decent hunt maybe maybe the buck people gripe more about the age of the bucks and the, and the size of the deer you know than anything else they're like I want my state to be like Iowa so we can have more five-year-old bucks on public land. All the three-year-olds get shot or, and they hardly ever make it to four years old. And my public land's awful. It's like, it's really not bad. I mean, you're going out and you're seeing lots of deer every single time and you're even seeing lots of bucks. You're just not, you're maybe not seeing the one monarch buck that you're trying to kill. It's just not a realistic goal for most people. They don't understand that. Uh, It's all right though. I mean, well, it's just a, to me, it's a matter of, in some ways, there's something lost in communication here because you guys go out to a pile of states and you know, you're not, you're not killing giants in every state, but you're get you're laying down awesome footage and you're killing a lot of really nice bucks. And what it shows me and what, it, what I've come to realize in my life, I kind of feel like I could go to any state I wanted that had whitetails and find a deer that would make me happy on public land. Now it might, you know, on paper, it might not be that buck that 
a lot of people would say they care about. But when you're out in the woods and you've worked for them and you show up and you're hunting out of a tent and that sucker comes walking down the trail, you get real happy in a hurry and you want to kill it. And I think sometimes it's just a matter of like reality versus the perception of what we think we want. And I think you guys have done such a good job of just showing that like, hey, this isn't like, this isn't the hunting public doesn't have some kind of secret where they go to the state and they find the best land possible and they're hunting the biggest bucks on public land. You guys are going hunting a wide variety of places. And what you find when you do that and you work your butt off is there's good deer all over. You know, they may not be 170s, but there are deer that would make 99% of the hunters happy all day long. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I reference Missouri often, you know, when we talk about that, because Missouri has, and I'm just using it as an example, but it has a lot of hunters. It has a department that has a good amount of funding. So they have a lot of public land and they have a lot of access opportunities, like with various seasons and methods and whatever. Um, but constantly you hear folks in Missouri complain that they want, you know, their deer to be like Iowa's because it's right across the border. They're like, well, why can't we have the same quality of bucks as Iowa? It's like, well, there's a million hunters in Missouri and there's 200,000 in Iowa. Like you're just not, (laughs) you want to get rid of 800,000 hunters (laughs) or because that's what you're dealing with. For the most part, in Missouri, like I said, they have way more access opportunities than Iowa does. Mm-hmm. Way, way more. Yep. So, in in Michigan, we hunted there last fall, and all you hear from folks—well, I shouldn't say all you hear. I'm, I, you know, I can't generalize it, but you hear from folks up there all the time that that say like it's so tough to get on a mature buck, and like the hunting up here is so poor. We went up there last fall, and man, we saw deer all over the place. Yep, and we are. Our goal was to try to shoot a two-year-old buck, and uh, we were able to do that as a group, you know, and Ted almost got a shot at a, a couple bucks even bigger than that. Yep. So when you, you ignore all that other noise going on and, and just focus on your goals for that particular hunt, stay realistic, like, you realize what you got into hunting for in the first place. Yep. Well, that's, man, I've been, I've been focusing on that a lot lately because I've I've been starting to think, you know, like, where do we get our hunting advice from? You know, who's, who's telling us. And it used to be the people that were writing for the magazines and the people on TV, because that was just what you had. Now you have all these internet forums and you, you, you can go get an opinion on, should I hunt Nebraska public land or should I hunt Michigan or, and you see it in everything. It's not just whitetails. It's like, are there any pheasants left? Are there any quail left? And what we're mostly hearing from people is, unqualified opinions and we're taking those and so like you said when you show up at michigan and you're not supposed to have good hunting and you find great hunting on public land that's what you find when you travel a lot is you don't show up with those local biases no. you, sh- you show up and you go well i don't know any better and it my to me the the best example of that is nebraska I don't know how many people have told me Nebraska public land sucks and you shouldn't hunt here for deer. All the rifle hunters kill all the, the, the bucks before they get mature. There aren't any deer worth going to travel for. And then I go hunt down there and I'm like, holy crap. Are you kidding me? Like, it's so good. And, you know, you still have to work and you're going to bump into some people and stuff. But the quality of hunt you can get in these places, if you tune out the BS and you just go Look for that sign, do some work, and try to figure out where those deer are. I, I'm continually surprised. I mean, here in here in Minnesota, um, 
you know, Northern Minnesota, the, the reason people don't kill deer anymore is wolves. Just ask them. And yeah, I get it. I hunt around wolves in Northern Wisconsin a lot and it's going to change what, what you're hunting is like a pack of wolves comes through. It sucks. Right. But it's not like those deer disappear. They've been living with wolves a long time. <laughs> they've, they've, this is a couple hundred thousand years in the making. And what you find is, okay, well, you might have to work a little harder to find those big woods bucks. But what I'm seeing in Wisconsin in places that get just pounded, they can bait there. They get two buck tags, crossbow hunt, you name it. I'm still seeing bucks now with some level of consistency on public land like, that are pushing like 160. And and you're talking like Iowa level, not not quantity, but quality. And people will sit there and go, well, you know, I'm not seeing any deer off my ladder stand because the wolves are moving in or the DNR mismanagement or something like that. And I'm like, take some responsibility for this. You might find that you're just making bad decisions or you're not working hard enough to find these opportunities. Oh, yeah. We see that all the time. Everywhere we go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they think they think that you guys, uh, you know, they're probably privy to some insider information, or you're the luckiest hunters in the world, or something like that. But it's just it's a matter of having that mentality to go where the deer are. Yeah, I mean that's that's our biggest advantage is our attitudes. Like we're we're young guys, we don't know as much about hunting as a lot of the, a lot of the hardcore dudes, like Dan Impal, for example, that's been hunting public land for almost as long as I've been alive, longer than that you know, John mm-hmm. Eberhardt, um, those guys, they, they just have more time in the woods than we do at this stage in our lives, but we can find success by just remaining objective. When we go to these places like pessimism, it, it will, it will seriously affect your success when you go to the woods. Yeah. Mine, mine sucks big. That. That's the biggest, that's the thing that's like, I've ha- always had a hard time understanding is like your hunters, you love to hunt, but you're pessimistic about what you're hunting and your hunting situation. It's like, man, we get to go hunting. You want to go to Africa? Like you can't, you gotta, you gotta pay somebody a bunch of money to go hunting over there. Their residents can't even hunt in most areas. If I'm correct. Like, no, they, they're, it's a different world over there. (laughs) I mean, but so that, but yeah, that's a good point. And that, that's why the, the small game thing, we've got ourselves into a position where we're looking at whether it's worth going hunting and we're making decisions to not go hunting or to bitch about the hunting we have. And it's like, man, we have so many opportunities. And if you get out of that negative headspace and get out there, you figure out, yeah, it takes some work, but it feels awful good to be doing it. And you're going to, you're going to have an awesome hunt. Yep. That's right. I, I love it. I love spreading that message. And I think, I, I, I mean, you know, I think no matter what you guys do, you're never going to convince everybody, but I think it's kind of one of those things I always looked at writing, like, I, you know, I used to edit Bill Winky, you know, when I was at Peterson's bow hunting and Bill has written a lot of the same stuff for a long time, but he's a master of trying to plug in one little nugget that everybody can take away. So even if it, even if you've heard the, you know, find the travel corridors, the rut pinch points, that kind of shit over and over and over again. He was just a master of always putting in something, like some little nugget that you could take away to yourself and think about and go, gosh, maybe I should be doing that on my farm. And I, I hope that's the case with what you guys are doing and not only just entertaining, but also just giving people that like little boost, like, hey, guys, you can freaking do this, too. Oh, yeah. Back when we I mean, because, you know, I worked for Bill for yep. seven years. That's one of the things we always talked about at Midwest Whitetail was like, how do we educate 
the viewers in a different way, you know, than what, what we've been doing anyway. So we're, you're constantly adapting and evolving as you go. And that's exactly what we do. I mean, we look through our videos and look at the comments. We constantly are talking to viewers about what their situation is like. And that's kind of the direction that we're moving is we're, we're trying to discuss more situational tactics because that's the, that is the advantage that we do have is that we get to travel to tons and tons of different public lands across the country. And we run into to different situations nonstop. So in order to be successful, we feel like we have to adapt to those different environments. And there's that's why we're we're kind of going down that road a little bit more with the tips and tactics and the educational side of things. Mm-hmm. Talk about specific situations that we get into. Mm-hmm. Just just to make it more relatable to the audience. Yep. Yeah. And when you get into specific situations, you really never run out of stuff to talk about because every single time you go, you can find something unique or you can find that little nugget like what you're discussing with Bill. You can find that little nugget that is different than the other stuff that you've learned up to that point. It's like, you know, you walk into the to the woods in Mississippi where you never hunted before. Me, for example, hunting public, public land down there. And I found this green bush way back in the middle of this river bottom that had deer brows all over the bottom side of that bush. I don't know what the hell the thing was called. I have no idea. But I found a few more of those green bushes around this little thick bedding area. And I was like, huh, you know, whatever that is, deer are feeding on it. And they're coming through here, and for whatever reason, this time of year, they're obviously feeding on it really heavily because the sign is fresh. And that was, you know, that was the kind of the light bulb moment for the day in that particular situation. Mm-hmm. Did Which, you kill a deer on it? No, but almost did. Had four does come in right at last light, and I was about to shoot one of them. But those deer down south, man, they're tiny and real flighty and they were at like 32 yards and I'm looking at these does and they look like a, they look like a German shepherd, you know, because they're, they're so small. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. And they're just, they're, they're bouncing around and stuff. I'm like, I don't want to try shooting one of these things at 32 yards and hitting her in the back or something. So yeah, I was going to shoot one if they would have came closer. Yeah. But did, did you figure out what kind of bush it was? I believe it was privet. Japanese privet. Really? Yep. Hmm. So you're going to, the next time you go down there, you're going to be on a Japanese privet pattern. <laughs> I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea, but I'm going to be looking for that. You yeah. know, if I'm in a similar situation somewhere and I'm sure there's a lot of people that watch that are in a similar situation. Well, so. that's, I mean, it, the, the more interesting point to that, I think is there's two things there. You're asking why, why, why are they feeding on this thing? What is it? And you're, you're open to, noticing stuff like that. And I think, I think we, this, it's like a hard thing to translate to the audience that, that woodsmanship and that time in the woods, all of those little things. There's so much going on when you take somebody who hunts a bunch of different public land over and over and over again, and has a lot of experience you know, like you mentioned, Dan Infold, that guy, he's not even aware of the things he's noticing. And so it's just, it's easy for him to walk through the woods and his spidey senses start tingling and he goes, oh, there should be a bedding area here or something like that. But to explain that depth of knowledge, it's just a difficult process. Yeah, it takes a long time. And that's one thing that we're always examining is the line of communication and how it comes across and how easy it is for people to absorb. No different than a teacher would if uh, you were trying to teach, you know, high school kids how to learn algebra. You're 
you're constantly examining your delivery and, and the best methods in which to get your point across so that people understand what it is that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Do you, so on that, on that note, do you feel kind of like a second grade teacher sometimes with that crew you've got? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's a, if it's a teacher or a babysitter, they call me grandpa all the time <laughs> you, or uncle Warb. Do you, do you, you don't ever find yourself like crushing up some uh, Ritalin and slipping it into Zach's Coke or something so he can so he can focus and not chase the next butterfly? <laughs> no, nah, everybody's got their own unique personality. We just kind of let them roam free. That's what that's that's the way it works with our group. And everybody brings something a little different to the table. You know, I'm the I'm the analytical one that that looks at at like every little fine detail of things. But that can also be you know, a weakness of mine when I'm in the woods because I'll overanalyze stuff to the nth degree. Zach's on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, where he may miss a few things because he's not like ultra detail oriented, but at the same time, he can see something, concentrate on it and go after it without overthinking it too much. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an advantage that we have is there's, and, and that goes with Greg and Jake and Ted and, uh, you know, Grant and Dylan, even from last fall, everybody brings a little bit different perspective to the table. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's constant learning. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's a good, that, that what you're talking about, the difference between you and Zach and the, in the personality and kind of the, you know, sort of a, you come at it almost like an engineer and he comes at it more freestyle and he's just not, not weighed down with the second guessing and the, and the minutia of the situation. I really think finding a balance between those two, being being good enough in the woods to notice that browse, but not so focused on it that you you can just look at that situation and go, okay, well, obviously they're coming through here. There's fresh sign. Let's just set up and hunt it. There's sort of a balance between the two. And you see that really, it, it, maybe it's a little harder to notice when you're, you grow up whitetail hunting, but when somebody who's a whitetail hunter goes out west and does their first spot and stock hunt and they're sitting there on the spotting scope and they see that mule deer bed down and they're like overwhelmed by thinking about the details because it's kind of a new experience like man can I get up behind him and I don't know if the wind's going to change and they just almost shut down and don't go and it, that that's like what you're talking about with your personality it, it can go too far that way but you also don't want to just be blazing through the countryside and <laughs> just hoping something stands up so you can shoot it either oh yeah that's that's 100% correct you know and and like I said you can you can lose the battle on either end of the spectrum at different times. But if you're at least conscious of that, of like your own personality and how your brain operates, then it helps you, you know, it, it helps me anymore hunting with those guys because I'll, I'll look at something and I might notice something that they didn't, but then they'll be like, Hey, we can't sit here and stare at this for 15 minutes. We, we need to go and set up right now. So it's like, okay, yeah, let's go. Yeah. I, I know all about that. I, some of my, I, I got one really good buddy who hangs tree stands with me on some of the the private stuff we hunt sometimes and I drive him absolutely nuts because I look at those situations and I will walk around there for two hours and just call it and be like, well, can't do it. And well, you know, like you, because you've made mistakes in the past and you've hung a stand and a, you know, right underneath a big branch or something and climbed up in it in the dark the next day and realize like, oh crap, I can't shoot, you know, to my left or whatever, yep. or I'm going to have to bend down now in order to get this one shooting lane that I thought was clear. And there's so many things that can go into that that can, you know, can eventually cause you to fail. But 
it's almost becomes, you know, paralysis by analysis yep. because you're, you're looking at so much stuff that it just becomes overwhelming. You can only manage so much. Your brain can only manage so much. Yep. I mean, that's, I'm curious how you feel about this, but that is one of the secrets that I love about public land hunting is there's, there's some level of freedom to it. Cause I'm not as concerned about trying to preserve deer movement. You know, if I find fresh sign, I'm just going to hunt it. If there's only one tree to sit in. That's what you're going to get in and you might, you might push it a little with wind direction or not be nearly as concerned and you don't have like the trail camera image history or any of that stuff. You just kind of show up and you're like, okay, well, this spot looks really good and that's the best tree and you just get into it and you don't have, sometimes it's just easier to not have as many options. Yeah. And to that point, that's kind of why we stopped hunting specific bucks. Um, And I wouldn't say we necessarily have stopped completely, but we used to focus on that on public land. Like we would find a specific buck and we would try to kill him. And it just, for our personalities, it just got too stressful. I mean, it was like, man, you, especially when you're on public land and you're, you're trying to keep everything a secret. If the deer's really, really big, mm-hmm. for example, if you, if that gets out, people are going to be all over that spot, you know? And it, at the end of the day, it was like, man, we're, we're putting so much time and effort into shooting this specific deer and all of these factors are out of our control. So at the end of the day, we're just stressing ourselves out. And now, now, like you mentioned, when you go into public land, you just roll up and you're like, well, let's go and uh, try it today. Not really sure what's going to happen, but we'll try hard and see if we can shoot some. If not, then we'll just go get them all. Yep. It's I, for me personally, at this point in my life, I can, if I want to take, the enjoyment level down a few notches, I start hunting a specific buck. Like that's the easiest way for me to lose, like to just start not liking it. It's just not for me. I mean, I was, there was like a, I don't know, this was an enormous deer in Iowa anywhere a few years ago. And I was, I'd saw him for like two years on public land and filmed him multiple times, been drawn back on him once and had all these trail camera pictures and videos of him. And when Greg and I were going in, the first morning to hunt that deer, I was just freaking paranoid. Like everything was just so tense. I mean, I could, I was making myself sick. I got, I got halfway up the stand and a step creaked and a deer took out from underneath of the stand, like 30 yards away. It must've been bedded there or something. And we slipped in there real quiet and it sounded like a big body deer. And I was so pissed. I was like, that was him. That was him. I was like, screw it. Let's just go home. There's, there's no point now. We just spooked him out of the, you know, out of the County. That was him for sure. And I think it actually was him, but you know, at the, at the end of the day, it was like, man, all of that stress and worry for that stupid deer, like what there, <laughs> I mean, so dumb. That's why I love turkey hunting so much. And that's, oh, that's why we've tried turning deer hunting more into turkey hunting a little bit. Like, well, just pick, like set some standards for yourself that are realistic every day and go out there and try to shoot some. And the standards change every day. That's one thing I think a lot of people get locked into is they, they go into a season and they're like, I want to shoot this fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. But what happens throughout the year is things change. Like you're, I mean, all the things in life change, things in the woods change, hunting pressure, all these things. You may get down to the and hunt until the end of your season, 
And it's like, man, I really would like to shoot a deer at this point because I've been on it like 15, 20 times. Your standards are going to be different on that day than they were on the first for a lot of people. Unless you're just like super disciplined and focused on, you know, killing a certain size animal or whatever, which is fine, too. I don't mind that. I just are. It overwhelms our personalities. It's too stressful. Me too. And I, one thing I realize, you know, cause I, I have pretty fluid standards too, is you, when you do this a lot and you show up at new public land, I mean, you blank a lot or you just, you, you know, you just generally don't have a ton of sits where you're covered in deer and you're passing up bucks and all that stuff. And so it, it's almost a matter of partially being like, which deer is going to give me that like awesome 15 yard quartering away shot that I, I'm not going to screw up, you know? And it's, it's not, terribly common to have those shot opportunities when you do what we do and so that kind of plays into it too it's like yeah it's easy to sit there and camp or sit there before the hunt and think okay well i only want a 125 or better or whatever then you get out there and then the reality of hunting hits you and you go this might not happen in the next three states and so you know then you have that 115 incher walk in and he gives you that perfect shot or that 100 incher it's like man i kind of want to shoot that guy and eat him and and (laughs) fill that tag and be happy with it Man, it, it all depends on the day. It's yep. like for for me anyway, we set up real close to the road in the middle of the rut, like a hundred yards from the car. And this is after hunting just like every single day nonstop and then editing videos every single night coming in. So we're getting pretty drained by the middle of November. We'll set up next to the road. And if a nice buck comes by and gives us a broadside shot at 10 yards or something like that, it's like, why the hell would you not shoot right now? <laughs> I mean, you could shoot him make a perfect shot. He can go down and you can load him up in five minutes because he's right next to the truck. Yep. And it's like, okay, no, I'll just wait and uh, hope that, you know, big Hank is Randy says steps out in the next week or two. And uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people, because they get focused on like that one sort of upper echelon goal is they, if you're not ultra disciplined with your setups and your shot selection and all that stuff, you end up wounding big bucks. Yep. And if you're not in, like, if you don't know how to deal with that situation mentally, when you finally do get your opportunity, people just melt down completely. I mean, I've been there. It, yep. it totally happens to a lot of us. A big one finally shows up after you've hunted 50 some days and it's like, man, you know, you don't know how to process or deal with that because you've never been through it. And then you screw up a shot and then you're really kicking your own ass. Well, not only that, but that can be a, the effects of that can last for seasons and spiral oh, yeah. worse. I mean, you, you know, we talked about attitude earlier. It's, I, I, I convince myself sometimes that I'm way over that bullshit because I've been through the buck fever thing and I've killed big bucks and done, done lots of stuff. And I'm telling you, I've, I've told this story on here before, so I'll, I'll shortcut it. But I had an encounter last year on public land in northern Wisconsin with a buck. The first deer that walked in in this new setup, I went and hung. I looked up and I saw this deer making a rub 75 yards away. And my first impression was like 160. Just a monster Northwoods deer. He's 75 yards away. He's coming down the trail. I'm like, I'm going to kill an absolute toad. And so I got set up, ready to go. He makes this rub. And instead of coming down there, he just kind of side hills and walks out of my life. And I had convinced myself that that buck was already dead. Like, it's going to, this is just going to happen. This is over. And when he walked out, I was like despondent, dude. I was like, couldn't, I couldn't even process my emotions. 
And it was to the point where later that night, I hear a different deer coming down. I only had seen that one buck, but I hear this buck coming down. You, you can tell by their cadence, you know? And so I'm like, I know this one has antlers and it's probably not that same deer. And when he walks out, it's a nice buck. Biggest buck I've ever killed on public land over there. And I didn't want to shoot it at first. And as he's like walking through the shooting lane at like 14 yards, in my head, I'm going, you, if you didn't have that other encounter, you would have been so freaking stoked. There would have been no question. And so I shot him and I was like, this was so stupid to like look at that encounter with that big one as like a failure because I didn't kill him. I mean, that was a freaking gift to watch that deer do what he did. And I've been in there scouting since and it, it, just that little encounter taught me a lot, but my reaction in the moment was like this temper tantrum baby thing where I was like, this sucks. I hate it because that deer walked into my life and out and it's so dumb to dwell on that stuff. Well, Infault talks about it a lot because he's the, he's the type of guy, he has that mindset. Well, I mean, he doesn't really anymore. He's kind of mellowed out over the years somewhat, but he comes from that mindset of like hunt every single day, pick a specific buck and hunt him down until you kill him. But he also knows how few people can do that. And I don't mean like, I'm not talking, I even throw the skill set thing out the window, but just how many, how few people can mentally do that or even logistically. I mean, most people yeah. don't have time to yep. do it. You know, he knows that, that that type of a hunter is, you know, in the, in the small minority. So, and that's kind of what we've shown over the years is that small minority of hunter, almost the aspirational side of things, but that's not necessarily how the majority of people operate. I mean, they have a few weekends of a year to get out in the woods or have a week's vacation, you know, and that's all I care. I don't care what you shoot as long as you're going after something uh, that's going to make you happy and that you're enjoying your time in the woods. That's, who cares what everybody else thinks? Well, yeah. And, you know, what, what Infault's talking about there is some people are totally comfortable and okay making this a lot of work, mm -hmm. but most people aren't. Mm -hmm. And so we yeah. we look for – but everybody wants the success. And so that's why all the Get Rich Quick, quick, quick products are so popular. You know, everybody wants to buy the decoys and the calls and all that BS. But really – if you want to be successful and this comes up over and over again is it like consistently successful on big deer you got to just really resign yourself to the work aspect of it and this is a hobby for most people and so they're kind of like they kind of butt heads with that reality and so that that brings up what you just said where it's just kind of our responsibility to say that get that out there and then say by the way you can love this stuff and love the experience for what it is and be super happy with it and you don't have to go down that road where it becomes a ton of work and you have that laser focus on one specific deer or one class of deer there's a lot of ways to enjoy this yeah absolutely and like i said dan's mellowed out over the years anymore he's he's more focused on the experience now he's kind of went through the the entire progression of a hunter, if you will, you know, coming up, learning all that stuff and then <clears throat> really perfecting his skills and pouring himself into killing big specific deer, you know, and now he's coming out the other side of it. And he's like, man, I just, I've always loved to hunt and mm -hmm. the experience is what's most important to me and teaching people. Yep. Well, that's, we hear that, you know, Eddie Claypool talks about that too, is just, I think you just kind of get to a point where you realize the big bucks don't matter as much as we make it seem. And so you go, man, 
am I enjoying this pursuit enough to justify it? Like nobody really, especially now you can see dead 200 inch bucks scroll through your Instagram feed all all September, October, November. It doesn't matter anymore. And so it's kind of like we, we have to find what actually matters out there in this stuff. And you realize that the big antlers are cool, but they're not really what matters about this. No, I mean, that's, that's one camp you know, of, of many that are in, that are in the, the whole pie of hunting, you know, one slice of the pie anyway. Yep. They're the, I mean, they're the most vocal and that's where the most attention goes, you know, simply because of the big antlers. But yeah, I mean, going back to the organic stuff we were talking about earlier, like most of those people that are coming from the city and getting into crossbow hunting, they don't, they may not even know what the difference between a buck and a doe is when they start hunting. They just want to know how to kill it fast and then how to butcher it and then how to clean it, how to cook it, how to eat it, you know, so completely different end of the spectrum, but I love them all. I mean, I just want everybody to go. Yeah. Well, I I do too. I just want to make sure. I just want people to love the experience. I want, you know, like maybe it's just a selfish thing on my part, but I want people to be in this for the reasons I think are the best. And I know that's totally selfish, but I want people I want people to do it long-term and not burn themselves out and not push people away because the focus is on one little thing. And we just know, just optics-wise in this country, a pure focus on trophy hunting doesn't really do us any favors. And I really don't think, I mean, you and I, we know a lot of hunters. I really don't think there are a ton of pure trophy hunters out there. But like you said, they're pretty visible. Like they're, 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 probably way overrepresented in the media than you'd you kind of maybe wish for and that part kind of sucks because it's not that doesn't it doesn't jive well with the general public to see people who are just absolutely in this for a head on the wall and nothing else but i think that's such a small minority that it, it gives me hope knowing there's lots of other people out there who are just in it for so many other reasons and just love the experience yeah i would agree all right, buddy. So let's let's talk about turkeys a little bit here before we wrap this up. How many states do you think you're going to turkey hunt this spring? Oh, man. As many as possible. I mean, <laughs> we're going to start in Mississippi, then go to Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana. Probably hunt up in the northeast some, PA, maybe like Maryland, uh, Virginia, Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, Montana. Um, yeah, probably Kansas, I mean, Wisconsin, maybe Minnesota for a bird or two late, uh, maybe Maine in June. (laughs) I don't know how many I just named, but there was, I talked for several seconds there. (laughs) How many do you think you'll hunt? Uh, I usually, I usually get to between six and 10 each spring and I don't necessarily have a tag in every state. I could care less who shoots a turkey, but Mm -hmm. as far as. I want to, I want to film and hunt or, you know, shoot in that many States. Yeah. Is, isn't it weird how you kind of just, when you love Turkey hunting, you just want to be around it in any way, shape or form. Oh yeah. It's so like, I don't know how to put this because it's so different than deer hunting for me anyway, but at the end of Turkey season, like I just want to keep going. Yeah. I mean, there it's, it's like, man, it's over. It's almost and like when you're coming down the stretch in mid to late May, most people are not even interested in watching turkey hunting anymore at that point. 
but we are trying to squeeze the very last drop of juice out of the orange. Like we're trying to get to as many places as possible before it closes down and we can't go again until next March, you know, but by the end of deer season, in contrast, we are haggard and just sick and tired and like ready to just sleep for three weeks. I mean, it's, it's just a, a marathon, but turkey season, it, it happens really quick. Yep. It's just this very brief period in spring. Yeah, I, dude, I'm, I'm exactly the same way. When I, when I fill my last buck tag, wherever, whatever state that's in, and I get out of that tree and I drag that sucker out or pack it out, I'm like, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to go hunt pheasants. I'm going to go do something else. But turkey season is different. It's just, there's so much more like just general fun to it. Like you don't go out, especially if you're running a gun with a shotgun, you don't go out and have a bad day. You know what I mean? Right. Like you just, you always feel like, okay, well, if we're not on them now, if I have a full day to turkey hunt and just move around, try to strike one up, it's never a bad day. Cause you always have that hope and you find some antlers, you find some mushrooms, you, you scout some deer and you're, you're always in the game and it's just fun. Yeah, it is. It weather's usually pretty nice, you know, wherever we're at in the springtime other than, you know, rain and whatnot, but it's just less stressful altogether just way easier, you know, to not, I mean, tur- a male turkey is a male turkey, as you and I have discussed before, yeah. like one comes in and he has a red head and he has a beard. It's like you're in trouble. <laughs> have, you, have you ever had, have you ever called in like a Jake that doesn't have a visible beard or have you ever called in one that was clearly a Tom, but didn't have a visible beard? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had a few encounters with them where you just can't bring the binos up and you're like, I don't know if that's a feather or if that's a little beard poking out. And those are my worst, they're the worst turkeys cause can't shoot them. Cause you just don't right. know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's so much fun, man. Um, do you guys, you guys don't go out and you, you're, you're always shotgun hunting them, right? Are you, you bow hunt them at all? No, we occasionally bow hunt them, but, uh, Greg gets more into the bow hunting stuff. And, uh, that's because he was, he grew up in Eastern Nebraska and that's how they, you know, their bow season comes in super early. So yep. he's always bow hunting them. Yep. I've, uh, I bow hunted them a half a dozen times and killed a handful of turkeys with the bow, but I would rather just run and gun. Yeah. I'd rather just be able to take the gun and then wax one in the face at 20 yards when he walks in and throw him over to the shoulder and head out, you know, yeah. it's, it's hard to travel to public land and bow hunt them because you don't get to see, a ton of ground and you don't feel it just feels like a different kind of hunt you know you don't running a gun with a shotgun on new public land is just fun but the one thing that i i would say to the listeners who you know maybe haven't bow hunted turkeys a lot is one thing you really learn is how to interact with them and how they're using certain spots it's kind of it starts to feel more like deer hunting in some ways because you see them like, oh, they they cross this corner of the field and they go gobble down here and they strut here. Or the hens filter through here and you kind of realize like you don't you don't get to know turkeys when you're running and gunning the same way as you do when you're just sitting there trying to work them all day. And it's it's a different experience. It's definitely not as overall fun, you know, to be stuck in that blind all oh, day. Like it's still a great experience. Like I've hunted those big flocks with Greg in eastern Nebraska in the early part of the season when it's cold, you know, but you're seeing 50 to 100 birds. Yep you know, in one big group and they're just vocalizing like crazy. You get to hear all different types of hen chatter and stuff. So yeah, I mean, experience yeah. it all when it comes to turkey hunting, man. I mean, go, 
go to Florida and hunt them down there and go to Washington and hunt them. They're, they're different animal across the board and they're blast to hunt everywhere you go. Never had a bad turkey hunt, I don't think. No, that, that Nebraska early season stuffs, that's, that's an interesting one. Cause you can get out there on like March 25th and it might be a foot and a half of snow and you might have every bird within two sections might be in that feed lot and you can sit there and watch them all day long on private land and not get them. And then you'll just have one of those days where you watch that flock and those toms get sick of each other and they start fighting and you hear all those, the fighting purr and at five o'clock in the afternoon, all of a sudden those two-year-olds split off. And then they start going, looking, they're sick of getting their asses kicked, or you just see that flock start to fracture. And God, that's fun because they're so callable then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a blast. It's awesome, man. All right, buddy, let's uh, let's wrap this up. I think I think everybody who listens to this probably knows where they can find you, uh, find the hunting public out there. But let's tell them again anyway. Uh, you can find us on uh, YouTube at the Hunting Public or Amazon Prime Video at the Hunting Public. And then uh, we're on all the major social platforms at the Hunting Public as well. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We even got a TikTok now that uh, Ted's been messing with. I heard you're not uh, supposed to do TikTok. You know why? Why is that? Because the Chinese government has a hand in it and they're stealing your information. Oh, well, maybe that's true. <laughs> all we're putting up there is blooper videos that don't make a lot of sense. So I'm not sure they're going to learn very much. <laughs> I, th- I think you'll be okay. I think you'll be all right with your TikTok. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on, buddy. Yeah, no problem, man. Thank you so much for listening. I can't honestly put into words how much I appreciate anyone taking the time to check into the Hunt for Real podcast. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe so you can get the latest episodes each week as we drop them. You can also find us at huntforreal.com our YouTube channel where we'll be putting up tips and films throughout the year, as well as through all the usual suspects when it comes to social media. Again, thank you so much for listening.